can be seated. If you've got your copy of God's Word this morning, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we'll be looking at one verse, verse 14. We've been in the book of Exodus since January. We're a little bit more than halfway through. And what we've seen week after week is that God has saved His people, Israel, the descendants of Abraham. God has kept His promise to make them a great nation. He is working on keeping His promise to take them to a promised land. And He is sustaining them so that they will become a blessing to the nations. We've seen that as He has saved them through the plagues, Passover and Red Sea, He has also sustained them in the wilderness, providing for their physical needs and taking them to the foot of Mount Sinai where God has descended in a cloud and is speaking audibly to His covenant people, entering into a covenant with them, a binding agreement. God has told them in Exodus 19 that if they obey these commands, if they submit their life to God as King, that He will be with them, He will be for them, He will bless them. And yet, if they instead choose to go the way of the world, to reject God's authority over their lives, and to disobey His commands, that they will instead experience God's judgments. They will not be able to stay in the promised land. They will not be able to be a light to the nations. And these ten words that God gives in Exodus 20, what we call today the Ten Commandments, are to be the foundation of all the other laws that God will give His people in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We've seen week after week that the first three of these commandments deal with worshiping God alone because He is the only God. And with reverencing Him with our worship and our words, not making graven images to represent God and not misrepresenting Him with our words. We saw that the fourth commandment deals with living our lives within the divine rhythm that God has provided, taking a Sabbath rest to remind ourselves who God is and who we are and what God has done and why we are here. The fifth commandment dealt with honoring and obeying parents, but more broadly, honoring and obeying the authority that God has placed in your life. And last week we saw the command not to murder. This week we get to the seventh commandment, which states in Exodus 20 verse 14, You shall not commit adultery. It's only a few words, and yet the Scriptures speak on the topic of marriage and of sexuality more than we like to admit. Oftentimes, we just choose to not look at or talk about or preach messages about or talk to other people about these topics. But make no mistake about it, if the church is silent, the world will speak. And the world is speaking loud and clear about what marriage is, and about what intimacy is all about. And it is telling a message that is vastly different than what God says in His Word. So this morning, in unpacking this command, its meaning and its application, I want to ask the question and attempt to answer, what does all of the Bible tell us about adultery, lust, and the purity of God And I want to point out five truths that I believe 
will challenge us to see the standard and the purpose that God has for our lives, even into the nitty-gritty areas of our lives that we would prefer to not hear from Him on. The first of these truths about this topic is this. Intimacy is a divine gift from God to be enjoyed within a covenant relationship. It is a divine gift from the Lord to be enjoyed within a covenant relationship. Think about this with me for just a moment. God is the one who thought it up. God is the one who imagined intimacy within marriage. It's not something that someone else created and He just tried to redeem. It was His idea because God, the God of the Bible, is not a prude. He is not embarrassed. He does not blush when these topics come up. Instead, He speaks about them. He addresses them. He created them for a purpose. He even gives entire books of the Bible to detailing the enjoyment that God expects a husband and a wife to have in this area. God is not a prude. But God is also not rude. He knows and has the wisdom to know when and where it's appropriate to speak about such things. But when they are brought up, He does not blush and He is not embarrassed. It is God, in fact, who gave one of the first commandments and said, Be fruitful and multiply. And then, right after He said those famous words, He gave some really serious incentives to mankind to obey that command. Just think about God. He could have made the reproductive process happen in a whole host of ways. He could have had us reproduce by digging ditches, or by going to the dentist. But He had a far better idea for how to incentivize men and women to be fruitful and multiply. The Bible even does a deep dive on this topic of intimacy in the Song of Solomon. But this is the point. This is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the covenant relationship of marriage. It is a gift from God for physical pleasure so that we can thank God for the enjoyment that it gives. It is a gift of God that serves His purpose of populating the earth. Why? So that God-glorifying image bearers can praise Him in every corner of the earth. But it is more than just about pleasure and population. In fact, this one flesh union, this covenant commitment of marriage, is a picture of something far, far greater The Apostle Paul explains in Ephesians 5 that marriage and everything entailed in marriage is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The husband and a wife's love and commitment and sacrifice and submission to one another is supposed to paint a picture to the watching world of Jesus Christ's relationship towards His bride, the church, the people for whom He has redeemed. In fact, the logic that the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians 5 is that this is why God made up marriage in the first place. Knowing about the future fall of man, knowing that He would send His Son, Jesus, to be the Redeemer, to ransom a bride from their rebellion. God instituted marriage before mankind fell into sin. Why? As a pointer to that greater reality 
that it would always point forward to, to Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. And within that marriage covenant, intimacy is a sweet gift to be privately protected and to be exclusively enjoyed in the purity and bliss of the marriage bed. Physical intimacy is important. It is meaningful. It is powerful. It is two coming together, complementing one another perfectly, not in selfish, but instead in self-sacrificial love. This is the act that God ordains to seal the marriage covenant. This is the means God ordained to grow a family. And this is a place where shame should have no place. And when something as meaningful as physical intimacy within marriage is created by God, we should know that it can also be dangerous. And that brings us to a second truth. Not only is this a divine gift given from God to be enjoyed within the marriage covenant, but the Scriptures also teach us that adultery breaks the marriage covenant and tells a lie about the gospel. Adultery breaks the marriage covenant, but it also tells a lie about the gospel. There are few, few greater heartbreaks in this life than the heartbreak of adultery. When someone says that they are committed to you alone and they have eyes for no one else, when they share themselves with you, tell secrets to you alone, make promises and vows to you that they will be there through thick and thin sickness and death, when they start a family with you only to show later that those promises that they made, those vows they committed themselves to were empty and shallow as their desire shifts from being for you for another. There is a deep wound that is created. Not keeping your marriage promises can create wounds that do not easily heal. And misusing the gift of intimacy which God created to be enjoyed within marriage, using that for our own purposes brings heartache and pain and shame and guilt and brokenness into our world. Allowing yourself to be vulnerable with someone without the promise of covenant, enduring love and commitment To you is a recipe for broken hearts, broken relationships, and a broken culture that tells lies about the gospel, marriage, and sexual intimacy. This was created by God to be a gift to be enjoyed within marriage. But when we instead choose to participate in these things outside of the marriage covenant, it is taking a gift that God has given us for a purpose and making our own rules about it and therefore harm ourselves and others and sinning against others and against God. And it leads us to live lives full of guilt and shame. It leads to the breakdown of the family. It leads to sin against God. Make no mistake about it. Marriage and intimacy are divine gifts given from God to be enjoyed. But outside of the marriage covenant, intimacy is marked with pain and with shame. It affects you and your neighbor. But it also tells a lie about the character of God and about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Because intimacy is only meant to occur within marriage. And marriage was created by God to be a picture of the covenant love between Jesus and His bride, the church. Adultery and sexual sin tells a lie about the faithfulness of Jesus to His people. It distorts the beauty of the gospel of Christ. It mars the picture that the gospel is supposed to be put on display within marriage. Adultery leads to the breakdown of the family. It's rooted in unfaithfulness to keeping the marriage promises we've made. It leads to serious and long-lasting trust issues. And it is a manifestation of coveting what belongs to someone else. In short, adultery is a massively big deal to God who created marriage, created intimacy, and purposed these things to point the watching world to Him and His faithfulness. When we try to redefine marriage and redefine God's standards for intimacy based upon what the culture says, it's not just that we're allowing people to have rights and privileges in our country and our world. It is encouraging people to believe and to tell a lie about the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is at stake in how we think about these things. At this point, you, like me, might be thinking, I agree. Adultery is bad, and I have never done that. I hope all the other adulterers in here are listening. But if you're thinking that, push pause. Not so fast. Because our third truth is this. God's standard for purity is perfection. God's standard for purity is perfection. We saw last week with the command not to murder that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, if you have anger in your heart, then you've already committed murder in God's eyes. And He doesn't stop with the sixth command. He carries on to the seventh. In Matthew 5, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, gracious, meek, and mild Jesus, dares to say this. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members, then that your whole body go into hell. Jesus has a way of getting in our business, doesn't He? Jesus will not allow His followers or His enemies or the crowds to think that because they have not cheated on their spouse, that they have met God's standard for sexual purity. Remember, God isn't just interested in your actions. He is interested in your heart. And what that means is this. Coveting another person, 
imagining what could be, dwelling on impure thoughts or images, even if you do not act on them, are the same thing as committing adultery in God's eyes. A lingering look is lust. Feeding into the fantasies of pornography or sexual images or romance novels is lust. The look-don't-touch rule that many in the Bible Belt have adopted doesn't work with a holy God. The look-don't-touch rule is an easy way to feel self-righteous when you look at other people who have looked and touched. But God cares about your heart. He cares about your holiness. He cares about your commitment to the promises that you've made. And the church today regularly will give a loud round of applause and will scream amen when homosexuality is preached against, but they will shut their mouths in silence when their sexual sins are called out. The church today has a big black eye that we might not see. A big black eye of hypocrisy that the watching lost world notices, even if we don't. How can we seriously think that it is okay to publicly bash so-called gay marriage and homosexual sin when professing believers, professing born-again believers who are professing to be washed in the blood, forgiven by God's grace, empowered by God's Spirit, and given a new heart, are addicted to pornography, unfaithful to their spouses, treating those made in God's image like they are a piece of meat, sexually active, staying the night together before marriage, having children out of wedlock, and living lives of lust. We lose our ability to be the prophets that God has called us to be in a lost culture when our standards are lower than God's and we call out other people's sin without first addressing our own hearts. The holiness of God will not tolerate homosexuality. But neither will a holy God tolerate our different manifestations of sexual impurity. Friends, God cannot be the Lord of your life without also being the Lord of your bedroom, the Lord of your thought life, and the Lord of your relationships. That is not what lordship means. When you say, God, you can have all of this, but this I will not give up. Notice what Jesus says. You know, guys, if you mess up, just remember God's grace is greater than all your sin. He's going to forgive you. Just enjoy a little bit of this and that later and ask for forgiveness and it'll be okay. That's not what he says. Notice what he said. If you look at just a little bit of pornography, just say your prayers and you'll be fine. It's no big deal. It's all right, guys. It's normal. Everybody struggles with this. It's all right, guys. Just see how close you can get to the fire before you get burned. I understand. I'm a God of grace. That is not what Jesus says. No. He says, do whatever it takes to destroy sin in 
your life. He says, cut off your hand, gouge out your eyes. He says, take radical steps of obedience to eradicate sexual temptation. Get rid of it. Cut it out. Destroy your smartphone. Get rid of those channels. Take a different route to work. Throw away those trashy romance novels. Stop flirting and sharing your life with co-workers and emotional affairs. Find your weak spots and stay away from them. Find accountability. Give people the opportunity and the invitation to get in your business and help you run hard after Jesus because you and they both know that you're prone to wonder. He says, repent no matter the cost, no matter how crazy you look to the watching world. Why? Because if you continue to live in unrepentant sexual sin or in any other unrepentant sin, Jesus says you will go to hell. That's why. You're not saved by your sexual purity. You're saved by Jesus' finished work on your behalf. But when you believe in Him and you're born again and given a new heart and the Spirit dwells inside of you, you will not be perfect, but your posture towards sin will be one where you are not comfortable with it and you are willing to do whatever it takes to put it to death. God's standard for purity is perfection. And what that means is grace does not give us a license to lust. Whether you're married or not, whether you're a teenager or an adult, whether you're male or female, whether you're young or old, it doesn't matter. God's standard is perfection and God's grace does not give us a license to lust. That is not legalism. That is biblical Christianity. And if you think it's legalistic, it's because you don't know how to read your Bible. That's what Jesus says. Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. When I hear myself preaching that, when I read Jesus' words, when I consider this topic, when I consider God's standard of perfection, when I consider knowing my own heart, knowing my own weaknesses, knowing all the things about myself. It makes me feel about this small. It makes me feel unholy, unworthy, and unsavable. And that is where we need the hope of the Gospel. And that's our fourth truth. Only God's grace can forgive our impurity and can empower our holiness. God's grace doesn't give us a license to sin. God's grace forgives our impurity and empowers our holiness. When we read Jesus' words, and we see God's standard, and we recognize that we are no better than the adulterer, It gets in our business. It steps on our toes. It makes us uncomfortable. Friends, to pretend like this is not an issue for every single one of us is to tell a lie and not live in reality. Our lustful hearts treat people made in God's image as objects to be used. Our lustful hearts are at the root of marital infidelity and the breaking of our marriage promises. Our lustful hearts tell a lie about God and the gospel. Our coveting for intimacy communicates to God that He is not enough for us. 
And while this might hit us all in different ways and to different degrees, it is an issue that we all must deal with. And it is an issue that none of us can deal with alone because none of us are able to forgive ourselves and none of us are able to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and fix this problem and overcome temptation on our own. What we need is forgiveness for falling short of God's standard and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to pursue holiness. And that forgiveness and that power that we need to deal with our guilt and our power problems, they are available to us only through Jesus Christ, the only one who was perfectly pure and holy. Jesus Christ, think about this, never lingered on a lustful thought, ever. Just mull on that for a minute. He never lingered on a lustful thought. He never daydreamed about the forbidden. As an adolescent man, he maintained perfect purity. As a young adult man, he never longed for what God had not provided for him. He never gawked at an attractive female or treated others as objects to be used. He maintained perfect, sinless, sexual purity as a single man all the days of his life. And then, having earned God's blessing because he had obeyed God's covenant, he instead took upon himself God's curse and went to the cross to die for our unholy sins, both public and private. Jesus bore the judgment of God for my sin and for your sin so that a holy and righteous God could forgive us for falling short. And then He defeated death and ascended on high and took a seat at the right hand of His Father in heaven and He sent the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in and convict and empower believers to live for Him and to not live for sin, to pursue purity instead of pursuing the pleasure of sin. And this is a radical claim, but the Bible says it. Jesus and the apostles claim that that Holy Spirit that dwells in His people has the power to keep us from living in bondage, to keep us from living in sin. The Holy Spirit has the power, according to the Bible, to keep us from living lives of sexual immorality if we are truly born again. And many people hear that and they say, no, that's not possible. But people who say that garbage don't know their Bibles. They like to sing about God's grace and ignore God's demands. They like to sing about God's forgiveness, but not His calls to purity. The Spirit of God empowers us to say no to sin because He creates in us a new heart and He gives us new spiritual affections and appetites for something far greater that will truly satisfy the treasure of Jesus Christ. And because of that reality, the apostles and Jesus tell us in the New Testament, not a little of this and a little of that never hurt anyone. They never say, God understands nobody is perfect. But instead, they say, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
in 1 Corinthians 6. They say, God's will for you is to be holy and to be able to control your own body unlike the lost who are living for this world in 1 Thessalonians 4. Instead, what Jesus and the apostles say is keep the marriage bed undefiled in the book of Hebrews. Instead, what they say is the fruit of God's Spirit at work in your life is self-control in Galatians 5. Friends, the Christian life is not a sinless one. It is not a perfect one. It is not one that never doubts and never struggles and is never tempted. But the Christian life is a repentant life. It's a life where we are striving with all of our efforts by God's help and God's Spirit to say no to sin, to cut it out of our life and to be like Jesus. We strive for personal holiness. We take radical measures against our sin, not in order to earn God's favor and forgiveness, but because we already have God's favor and forgiveness. We strive for personal holiness. We take radical measures against our sin, not in our own power, not only in our own imperfect efforts, but in the Holy Spirit's power that was purchased for us by our Lord Jesus. Jesus is our forgiveness. Jesus is our power. Jesus is our model. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our King. And only God's grace through Jesus can forgive our impurity at the cost of His blood. And only God's grace through Jesus can empower us to pursue purity with reckless abandon by the Spirit's power. We could stop there, but there's more. There's one last truth that I want to draw your attention to. God's grace provides us the forgiveness we need. God's grace provides us the power we need to live for Him. But there's one more thing God's grace does. Only God's grace can enable us to forgive the adulterer. Only God's grace can enable us to forgive adulterers and those who have sinned against us in those ways. When you've been sinned against within your marriage covenant, it will lead to sadness, anger, and confusion. It will lead to shame, feelings of inadequacy, even desires for revenge. Those are the responses of the flesh to being sinned against in this way. But the Gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful, so life-transforming, that it not only can guarantee your forgiveness and guarantee you the power to pursue holiness, it can also enable you to respond to adultery and sexual sin committed against you in the Spirit's power instead of in the flesh. It can empower you to forgive those who have sexually sinned against you and not keep their promises and vows to you. How? How does the gospel of Jesus, how does the story of God's holiness and my sin and Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, how does that empower me to such a radical and seemingly crazy and undeserved forgiveness that I'm willing to show to others? 
Because what the gospel reminds us every time we reflect on it is that we are spiritual adulterers who run after other lovers as we choose our idols over God every day. What the gospel reminds us is that we continually fall short and fail to keep the promises we have made to God and yet He is faithful and He is steadfast as we repent and believe in Christ. He welcomes us back again and again and again and again with an unshakable covenant love. The gospel reminds us That we, like a cheating spouse, have fallen far short of God's glory, but we are constantly shown undeserved, unearned grace over and over and over. The God, the gospel reminds us that our spouse's sin against us will either be punished in hell for the unrepentant or it was punished on the cross of Calvary to Jesus that God is just and righteous. He will uphold justice. He will take care of it. And we need not try to improve upon His justice by holding something against someone on our own. The gospel reminds us that we and all other sinners can never be the Savior, the Messiah, or the fulfillment of anyone else. We will always let other people down. We should never become someone else's rock and hope and treasure. And when our identity is found and our treasure is found in Jesus Christ alone and not in other people who will always let us down and can never be our Savior, we will be empowered to offer forgiveness and grace to them, even those who have sinned against us and do not deserve it. The gospel of Jesus empowers us to respond to others the way that God has responded to us in mercy and grace and forgiveness. Friends, God's standard for purity and holiness is unreachably high. But God's riches of grace that He lavishes upon us through Jesus are indescribably amazing. If you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, but you recognize that your marriage is not a reflection of the gospel in the way that it ought to be, then I encourage you as we close to repent to pray for God's Spirit's power to help your marriage to be a picture of the gospel of Jesus and the faithfulness of God to the watching world. If you're a professing believer here this morning and you see that you have impurity in your life, sins that you know are wrong and yet you continue to dabble in, repent this morning. Not with a worldly sorrow that feels bad in the moment and does nothing about it, but with a godly sorrow that leads to taking radical measures to put it to death. Tell someone else about it. Get accountability. Commit yourself to prayer and fasting. Do whatever it takes to cut it out of your life. Friends, every one of us falls short of God's glory and God's standard. The Christian life is not one of perfection, but it is one of repentance. 
And that means that we can't live comfortably in sin. We can't lower God's standards. We can't make our own rules. We can't fall for the lies that the world tells us that God grades on the curve. Friends, there are no secrets with God. Run from your sin, whether it is in this area of your life or any other. Run hard away from it. Put it to death and run to the life-giving grace of Jesus. If you hear of this gospel, this amazing, scandalous grace that God offers us through Jesus, and you have never repented of your sins, and you've never believed in it, you've never surrendered your life to Him or committed yourself to Him by faith, today can be the day of salvation for you. If you're here and you profess that you're following after Jesus, but ever since that has happened, you have never had any new affections for Jesus, and you have always only continued to run after the things of the world. If you have made some sort of a profession where you expect forgiveness, but there's been no genuine life change and no posture of repentance, then today could be the day of salvation for you as well. God is able through Jesus to take away your guilt and your shame. He can empower you to be holy and even empower you to forgive others who sin against you. Those promises are offered to us all but they will only become ours on the other side of repentance and faith and surrender. Do not commit adultery is a command that applies to every one of us because if Jesus is Lord, He is Lord of every area of your life. I want to encourage you in this moment to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. As the musicians come up this morning, I'm going to have them play for just a moment. 